Hello and welcome to Spy Hard Podcast and our third and final entry into our Diamonds Are Forever coverage. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. Now, we teased it earlier on this week. We teased it in the review itself. But Cam, who are we talking to? We are talking to actor Bruce Glover, who, of course, played Mr. Wint in Diamonds Are Forever and has also had just a very long career in the Hollywood world and has worked with a number of spy icons. In a special twist of fate before uh, we roll the interview, I just wanted to say that it's actually just Cam joining Bruce in this one. I'll explain as to why afterwards. And also before we hit play, I just wanted to let everyone know, listening, that some of the stories you may hear in the interview definitely reflect a time and place of, you know, when this film was made and some of the sensibilities and attitudes around that time. Um, and just to take everything perhaps with a bit of a pinch of salt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Mr. Wint, Mr. Kid being two gay characters in a 1971 film, um, that was not something that was dealt with a lot in mainstream film. Even nowadays, they struggle um, to sometimes get these relationships across on screen. Look at the way that, say, Star Wars or Star Trek dodges around these sorts of things and are nervous to touch it. And I think, you know, in 1971, they were trying something bold and some of the um, attitudes reflected by maybe some of the people on set and whatever don't match up with how we would view such a portrayal in 2022. So Cam, without further ado, give the people what they want. Bruce Glover, roll the tape. My first question is, you have a very extensive filmography even before you do Diamonds. I would just like to know what was sort of the first moment where you realized, you know, acting was something you wanted to do. Uh, it was not something that I was expecting to do ever because uh, I was work um, brought up during the Depression area and I started working uh, at jobs when I was six years old. And uh, my first job, I delivered groceries for 10 cents a day. And... Uh, so I would make 50 cents a week. I would work every day after school. And I would uh, work every Saturday until noon. And I would get my 60 cents. And uh, so the idea of being an actor was far, far away from any reality. Um, what I learned was that uh, I could do any work that I had to do. And I had to do work because uh, basically we needed money. And uh, I was already a person that was responsible for bringing money back to the family at the age of six. Mm. Um, and I worked that stuff forever. Um, I worked on a newsstand in a loop in Chicago uh, for a dollar a day. That was a big jump in money. Um and I was doing that by the time I was eight years old. And I worked in a glass factory when I was 14, having lied about my age because you weren't supposed to work until you were 15. I ladled molten glass uh, as a little kid. And uh, I, uh, but my, my main ability was I was an athlete and I was a strong uh, football player and a wrestler. and. Uh, I had also an artistic ability, so I was able to do paintings and sell sketches and stuff, even as a little kid. And um, 
And so the idea of becoming an actor in that tough working class neighborhood was like only the sissy boys became actors. And, uh, but I was a football player and a wrestler and I was on a championship football team in high school in Chicago. Uh, we were city champs in 1949 <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, played in front of a, hundred thousand fans at Soldiers Field. And uh, I had a football scholarship uh, to Colorado College, but they found uh, there was something weird about the way my brain worked. And uh, I, that first popped up when I was like six years old. I uh, flunked English and uh, because I had fooled them into thinking that I could read by just looking at a page and listening to some other person reading and I would memorize what they'd said rather than having learned to read hmm. an interesting brain. So they had me tested to see what was wrong and I would thought the test said that I was stupid. Well the reality was that I found out probably about the time I was in fourth grade a teacher took the class into the school library and said um, all right, all the class can go to wall one, two, and three, and Bruce and Irene can go to wall four. Wall four was all the college-level folks. So at that sudden moment, I realized I wasn't dumber than everyone else. I was smarter than everyone else. So the first book I took out was uh, uh, Sophocles. Uh, I, I, I took out a very profound book. Uh, and uh, impressed everyone with what I took out. And uh, um, so being an actor was not something that did, but I had an instinct for it. And uh, early days, like when I was even three years old, my mother had taken me to movies, which we weren't supposed to go to because my father was religious, uh, religious and he said movie theaters were evil places. But my mother would break, break the rules and take me to movies. And I'd seen a, a newsreel of FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, struggling to get to a microphone because of his polio. And it was probably run by his opponents to make him look uh, feeble. So I've never been able to find that newsreel again, but it was hmm. fascinating to me as a three-year-old that this man was struggling to get to this microphone. And um, I started getting, putting my body into his body and trying to understand what it would feel like to have that kind of body. Now, I did that when I was three years old. That was an instinct for acting that I had, and I didn't know it was acting. But I showed my mother, and I remember showing her, FDR struggling to get to a microphone. And she said, do you love your president? And I went, yeah, no, no, no. I didn't love my president. I was just interested in what that body was and how it felt to be that way. Well, that's how I approached acting eventually. When I finally got to acting, my approach to acting shows me doing an entirely different character with every character I play. And um, the... Um, the, the majority of big stars are people who do the same thing over and over and over again. I mean, if you look at Terry Grant, he's 
fun, you know. I mean, he's, but he's always Cary Grant. He's always the same person. Right. Uh, if you look at me, and people could look me up on imdb.com, and there's a demo of me in a variety of roles, and you'll see that every role I did was entirely different. But again, I didn't, I, I had instinct for acting. I remember doing wrestling shows where I faked things, and I worked in a carnival, and I worked in a clown suit. But none of these things did I think uh, I was an actor. But um, working, uh, working with the, the um, football, uh, I worked with weights a lot, and I worked in gymnasium with Mr. America types. I wasn't interested in being a Mr. America type. I was just interested in the athletic strength that it gave me. And uh, one of the uh, buddies that I had, uh, who I also did art projects with, um, and we worked out with Way, said, Bruce, you got a good built on you. You ought to go down there and pose at the Art Institute or the art classes. Well, that's the way we all talked in those days in Chicago. If I didn't talk like that, you were considered a sissy. You had to talk like a tough guy. If you didn't talk like a tough guy, it took me a long time to lose that accent. <laughs> <laughs> now, the um, so I'm posing at the Art Institute in Chicago, you know, the great museum, and they had a school in the basement, and I was posing in this class, and there was this beautiful naked woman posing across the room from me, and um, she was totally naked. I was able to wear a jock strap to hide my deficiencies, and uh, which was kind of them. Anyway, um, she came up to me at the break, and she said, Bruce, how would you like to, and she was flirting, and I thought, and she paused, and I went, to my mind was going to like to, like to, yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to. And then she said, be a gorilla. I went, what the hell is this? Some kind of new sex act that there is in <laughs> Chicago? You know, I was like 18 years old, you know, not, not too experienced. I mean. Anyway, so it turned out she was a stripper and she had a nightclub act. Uh, where she uh, did a big act with uh, um, a guy wearing an ape suit that weighed 100 pounds. And she took me to meet her, her um, the guy who owned the act, actually, Freddie Smith, great guy. And he said, Bruce, go down to the Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago, great zoo. And he said, meet Bushman. I said, okay. And I went to meet Bushman, and I went to the ape house in the zoo, and I was down at one end, down where the orangutans were, and the chimpanzees, and Bushman had a special cage way up at the other end, and Bushman was like a famous four or five hundred pound gorilla, and there were a bunch of people in front of the cage, and then when they all left, Bushman actually looked over at me, hmm. and he waved his hand at me. And I went over to his cage, and I was standing in front of his double cage, and he suddenly spoke to me. He said, Bruce, don't tell anyone I can talk. And I went, okay, Bushman. He said, now, think my thoughts. I 
went, okay. And he said, do my moves. And I went, okay. He said, that's it. Get out of here. And don't tell anyone I can talk. That's your first acting lesson. I went, okay. Well, there you are. I mean, I teach acting, even though I don't believe in teaching anything. I believe you should just do it. But I tell, I teach people, and I've been teaching for years. I started teaching from the first play I was ever in. But there I was, uh, and um, the the um, in a sense creating FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's body, and talking to Bushman and putting my body, my mind into the thoughts of a gorilla and moving his body the way he moves his body. That's what I do as an actor. Right. You be I become the person. And in a sense, that's what I teach people how to do. Now, here we were. Uh, I was doing the act, and we were down in Tampa Bay, Florida. And I was down there for like three months. And um, the, uh, um, the act was... In, in there, there were strippers in the club, and the strippers, in a way, were more classed in those days. But the clubs were run by mafia people, and I, I, the, uh, the so it was a dangerous kind of club in a way, and you had to be careful about who you talked to and how you talked. But there was the nightclubs in those days were a little uh, different than they are now, and they would have obviously a stand-up comic. And they had singers and dancers and women. The strippers were kind of classier in those days. And um, there was a magician working in this club, and we were in the dressing room, and he, in front of everyone, some of the strippers sitting at their makeup tables and stuff, and he took out his magic wand and he said, Bruce, he tapped me on the forehead. He said, you. And then he tapped me on each shoulder. R, A, and then he tapped me on the nose and he said, an actor. Hmm. <laughs> and I went, what do you mean? And he said, he said, you make that gorilla so believable, you ought to try acting. <laughs> and what? And there was a guy working in the club who was a, uh, uh, a singer in the club. And he said, yeah, you ought to go to New York and go to an acting class in New York. I went, acting class? There's a class where you learn to act? And he said, yeah. And I said, I, I still don't believe in that. Frankly, even though I taught acting classes, I don't believe in teaching acting. I believe you have to not act. You have to become. So I teach people not to act. I teach people to become by getting inside the body of the character. Now, not too many people actually are successful doing all of that. They, you know, they do one thing over and over again. And uh, there's this phrase called character acting. Well, mm -hmm. There should be another play phrase called multi-character acting. And a lot of actors who are called character actors just do the same character over and over and over again, just like Cary Grant is always the leading man, beautiful guy. Um, these character actors are, I, 
they always hire him because he's the grumpy guy or whatever. I get I got hired eventually when I finally turned around to acting, but I have a strange brain and they have found it out even though they had given me an IQ test and had an I high IQ. Uh, I had my football scholarship after the championship high school. And, uh, the, but they looked at some of my grades and said, you have to go to another college before you come to Colorado College, which also had an art school, which was fascinating. And uh, they said, but go to another college. So I went to a local junior college in Chicago called Wright College. And I played football for them for two years. And um, so while I was playing football, I was picking, pulling up, uh, you know, college credits and all that stuff and hoping that I will prove to Colorado College that I could do college-level work. But I flunked English twice. Yeah. And I had taken all these tests, which kept me out of the draft. And the Korean War was going on at that point, and I didn't want to go to the Korean War. But when I flunked uh, English twice, that got to the draft board, and they drafted me. Right. And I was on my way to Korea. And Korea, I got to Korea the last six months of the war. Uh, I was there uh, living in a in a tent in, a, in the middle of a rice paddy, um, and uh, I loved the Koreans. They were great people, and I got uh, certain gifts from Korea. Now, when the war was over, uh, six months after I got there, um, then I was there, uh, continued being there, and I think I was there on at least another almost another year, and but. The, University of California sent uh, instructors over, and you could take pick up college courses. So I signed up for that. I picked up, and I did nine hours of college credits while I was in Korea, in Seoul, Korea. And um, I decided I'd better take English and see if I can finally pass that thing. Well, at the end of the course, a teacher, very kind, smart guy, pulled me aside and said, Bruce, I don't know what it is with you but there's something strange going on. And if I went by your grammar scores, I should flunk you again. And I went, really? He said, but you wrote three terrific short stories. Now, he had handed out reading or writing assignment. He says, you, you flunk your grammar scores, but you wrote three terrific short stories. And... Um, and you did everything correctly, and you're, you you show real talent as a writer. So I'm going to pass you just to get you through this. Well, again, there's this, he said, there's I, I have something about you. I mean, I had something about my brain. Well, in those days, they didn't know there was this thing called dyslexia. Mm, yeah. And uh, actually, I got a degree, uh, I got a Bachelor of Science in Speech, but uh, and I haven't been able to stop talking since. Um, but uh, one of my one of my um, other di- disciplines was psycho psychology. I, everyone I knew was nuts, so I decided to try to understand how brains work. And um, I started studying that, and eventually got onto what. Uh, this thing was that I had, and it's called dyslexia. 
and there are and in the research that I've done and in the years of teaching and the years of acting that I've done and the other arts that I do, I'm still I'm a painter right right now I'm working on an art book uh, that eventually will come out and people should buy it and send me lots of money. Hmm. Um mostly I'm gonna write a book on acting and technique and that kind of thing. My son Crispin and I Crispin and I did a film in the Czech Republic, you know, Crispin. Yep. I love her, my son, and, and I uh, did a movie, and he's still working on it. We did it very quickly, it only took us 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> he's getting it to the point where it's almost ready to go. Okay, so I, I, I figure that dyslexia would involve, there can be people who are dyslexics who still have high IQs. I was able to eventually understand it, but... Believe me, if you looked up the history of dyslexia, people didn't start to find out about it until about 10 years ago. Yeah. Maybe a little sooner than that. At any rate, um, when I was in Korea, I got another gift. So a lot of these things that I'm talking about, dyslexia and this other gift that I got, are things that people think are terrible things, but actually they end up being gifts. Another gift that I got from Korea, because I was in the middle of a rice paddy, uh, I caught malaria. And I came back from Korean War, and I, I got out a little earlier, because I'd signed up for going back to college, and I only spent 22 months in the Army instead of my full 24. And they sent me back, but I sent, they sent me back with malaria, and I couldn't pick up my football scholarship. So... Again, I went back to that college where I played football and decided to pick up some courses while I was getting myself cured of the malaria. And uh, I saw a play being uh, advertised for an audition at the college. And, you know, uh, the director was one of the teachers there. And the play was a Tennessee Williams play, Camino Real. And I went to the audition and the director teacher said, come back for the callbacks. Uh, and I said, okay. But I didn't go back to the callbacks. I went back to, uh, I had to figure out some things to get the money to get through college, even though I had the GI Bill. I needed more money. And uh, so I was setting up uh, getting back into my ape suit again. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, probably with a new partner that the girl that I threw around wearing my 100-pound age suit. So I didn't go back to the callbacks, but uh, the next week after the callbacks, I was walking down a flight of stairs, and I see this teacher director coming up the stairs at me, yelling at me, where were you? You didn't come back to the callbacks. I went, yeah, I got busy with some other stuff. And he said, he said I want you to play the lead. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, okay. And the lead character was a character named Kilroy, and it was an odd Tennessee Williams play, which uh, Tennessee uh, was one of the different plays. I Eventually, my first Broadway show was uh, a Tennessee Williams play, and I got to know Tim pretty well. He was a kind, sweet man. Yeah. Um, and and, and the, uh, so there I was suddenly in a play, and I, I have never had an acting lesson. I had never read a book on how to act. I just did it. 
sense. That's to me what dyslexics do who are smart. They don't want to learn the rules. They don't want to waste their time learning the rules. So anything that they have, they just do it. And people who are smart enough to do what their instincts take them to will do very well with it. So instinctual things, and I, if I title um, my approach to acting, and I would probably call it, you know, instinctual acting or experiential acting. Only by experiencing the life of the character can you really become the character. Right. But most people don't do that. They figure out how they're going to do it, how they're going to sound, how, you know, they make all these choices of what they're going to do with themselves. And that's not what I do. Mm -hmm. So there I was in a play doing this character. And I started teaching one of the other people how to act because he was acting. And I taught him how to not act by saying, listen, when you talk to my character, look at me. See what I do and see what my reactions are. When I talk, when you, you uh, think about what your character trying to get my character to do and see if you're being successful, watch me, watch how I react. And he went, yeah, okay. And uh, basically, that's another acting lesson where you watch and see what's coming at you. You don't worry about how you're going to respond to it. I don't worry about how I'm going to respond to a situation. I put myself into an situation, right. explore it, and, and react to it rather than know ahead of time what I'm going to do. So when I see a movie, the difference between... Now, I did a hundred plays. So the next thing I did after that, I did a couple community theater things in Chicago, and I went up to a... Uh, summer stock company, which uh, in Wisconsin, were um, they had already hired the three paid actors, and I worked for free, but I, I could audition for every uh, part every week, and I would get a leading role every week. I lived out of my car and slept on a porch in the theater, and um, I did a new role every week and got great reviews. And that was the summer when I went to hell with football. I'm going to be an actor. So you, your question, yeah. when did you realize was that was it? That summer, you know, although, you know, I mean, I suppose the, the, you are an actor from that magician in the nightclub about my being an actor was the beginning of thinking of being an actor. And so I came back from uh, uh, Wisconsin and I, where decided that I was figured out that I should go to Northwestern University, which is where I, I did get take acting classes there. But in a way, I knew more about acting than the most of the teachers did because they had never acted, and I'd already done ten plays. Yeah, and gotten got great reviews. So experiencing and doing things are better than just studying how to do it don't study how to do it just do it so you start like acting you're doing movies do you know what role it was that got the attention of the bond producers <laughs> yeah i do uh, eventually i was a new york actor and i did 
100 plays, Summerstock, Repertory, uh, Tory, and Broadway. I did Broadway and Off-Broadway. I even uh, produced and directed an Off-Broadway play. But theater was dying in New York, and uh, it, it, the signals I was getting was you had to go to Hollywood to become a film actor. So I made one trip out here and picked up three credits on TV and then went back to New York and did another Broadway show where uh, I, uh, and then came back again and got another uh, Broadway show that was going to open in in New York eventually, but they were starting out in Los Angeles. So again, I was exploring what it was like because again, theater was dying in New York. Mm -hmm becoming more difficult to make a living uh, doing just theater. So um, I eventually made the choice to move to California. And um, your, your, your deal with an actor as an actor is you have to impress people, agents and casting directors. Like agents have to believe that they can make money with you, that you have, and I, had a lot of agents that uh, the first agents I, I had were the best ones. Eventually, agent became uh, just another parasite living on your flesh, uh, <laughs> rather than being somebody who helped you very much. But um, you, the casting directors, uh, will get impressed by you, keep bringing you back, so the agent has an easy sale. Oh yeah, Bruce in there. Yeah, bring Bruce in, definitely. Uh, there were great casting directors, and eventually one of the casting directors, who uh, wife was studying French, and one of the roles that I had done was I played a French uh, Frenchman who was uh, uh, within one of the television shows, and uh, uh, his wife had seen was seen the show, and she called to her husband, Billy Gordon, which is his name, uh, who was a casting director, and said, "Hun, there's a new French actor working in town. Hmm. And he said, yeah, he's very good. I'll look him up. And then when he realized I wasn't French, he was very impressed by me. And he later lied to um, a director, uh, Stanley Kramer, about a movie called Blessed Beast and Children. And the Kramer brought in six guys and read us all, and uh, he hired two guys, and I wasn't one of them. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, and one, but one of the guys he hired got a bigger job somewhere else, and pulled out of it. And Billy Gordon lied to Stanley Kramer and told him I was his second choice. Now, when I went for a meeting with Kramer, I remember he was in his office, and I'm not going to go. He said, yeah, yeah. And I, said, I said, hi, I'm Bruce Cummings. He said, who are you? I said, I'm the guy going to be brave. He didn't know who I was. I wasn't his second choice. Billy Gordon had lied to him and told him I was second choice. And I did a terrific job in the part. It was kind of a backwoods kind of guy. Like, ooh, you got a pop gun, you know, hmm. kind of a hickey kind of guy. And I did a terrific job, and Kramer from then on was saying, I'm going to make you into a star and all that stuff. But it was Billy Gordon who was the casting director on Diamonds Are Forever. 
Right. You know, Billy was always on in my corner pushing me, and he kept pushing me at the director, uh, Guy Hamilton, is a terrific director, a terrific guy. And uh, Cubby Broccoli, uh, one of the producers, a terrific man. And um, I uh, eventually, there was a final meeting. There were three three people, me, Putter Smith, and this other actor. And I figured, oh, my God, I was looking at Putter, and I was looking at this other guy, and I went, I'm there next. I, they've chosen me, and they're trying to figure out which of these other two guys are going to be with me. Well, that wasn't true. The guy that uh, they had chosen was Cutter Smith, because Guy Hamilton had seen him. And, uh, he was a man of Polonius Monk, and he seen Putter playing bass fiddle. And was so impressed by how he looked and the way he was that he decided that he was going to be one of the guys. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, who were going to be, uh, you know, trying to kill Sean Connery and Diamonds Are Forever. But I kept telling them how good this other actor was, because I thought Putter was just kind of a clump. Because <laughs> 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 he was shy, you know, he was a magician, he wasn't an actor and all that stuff. And I kept telling them how good this other actor was, but I didn't realize I was, he was my opponent. <laughs> But eventually they decided that I would be one of the guys. And then when I got the script, I, for the first time, realized that Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd were gay. Mm. And this was the first time in a movie that two characters were going to be actually identified as gay. And uh, I didn't know that until I was told that I had the role. And then when I looked at the script, I realized it. Well, luckily, my wife was a ballet dancer, and she was also a Broadway dancer. So when we met, um, she was, you know, had a lot of dancer friends that were gay. And I remember, you know, they were friendly, good, talented people, uh, intelligent and fun. And I used to make fun of with them uh, doing this gay stuff. Uh, oh, if you two get divorced, I don't know which one I'm going to marry, you know. <laughs> and I remember saying, yeah, well, it won't be me, buddy. <laughs> but I, you know, I could, I had fun with them and made fun back at them. But I didn't want that character to come across in a way. So I had lots of ideas of how to do the character. But I, uh, I, I do dangerous things as an actor. Right. So when Guy Hamilton asked me if there was anything he could do for me, I, I said, yes. And he said, what is that person? He said, well, uh, don't tell me which character I'm playing. He says, oh, really? Why is that? And I said, I don't know, Guy. Just don't tell me which character I'm playing. So he also told Putter Smith not to tell me which character he was playing. I didn't want to know which of the two characters I was playing, and I didn't know we were out in the desert in Las, near Las Vegas, and we were getting our makeup and wardrobe and all of that stuff, and I, in about two hours, I was going to be shooting my first scene, and I still didn't know which character I was playing. And in a sense, that was uh, my approach to that was, to do dangerous things. And suddenly I realized, oh my God, I don't know which character I'm going to play. 
I'm going to get out there and I'm going to be terrible. They'll fire me and bring in a good actor. And I said, wait a minute. What's going on with you? Call your acting teacher. I went, okay. So I called myself. I'm my acting teacher. And I said, Bruce, what's happening to you? I said, Bruce, you're locked into a big ball of failure, a big cement ball, and you got to get out of the ball going, I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail. Well, you got to get out of this ball. So what are you going to do? You have to break out. So... What do you, what do you got to break out to? Sky, sky, blue sky. It's like seven in the morning out there in the desert. Blue sky, I'm up in the blue sky. I'm starting to breathe in air a little bit. And the sky is coming in. And I thought I'd better start looking at sand around there. Well, it wasn't sand, it was dirt, <laughs> dust. <laughs> and I'm looking at that. And finally I took in a big breath and it was cool air and it came in and I suddenly felt great. I feel great. Now what? So I looked over at Putter Smith and I went, so Putter and I are gay people. I still didn't know which character. And I looked over and I looked at him and I went, gay people piss. And I looked at his snaggling mustache and his weird lips and raggedy teeth. And I thought, there's no way I want to kiss this guy. So if there's no way I want to kiss this guy, there's no sex in our relationship. Hmm. There is no sex. I, I don't want to even think of the other things that people do with each other as much as they like it. I'm not involved in that. So there's no kissing. But what about Putter Smith? Well, Putter Smith is fascinating. He's, he's got that, you know, he's a musician. I, 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 he played bass fiddle for me a couple times and still hadn't told me which character he was playing. And so there I was looking at Putter and thinking, he's like a big giant toy. Hmm. He's my toy. I have to just push the button in his side and he will do whatever I want to do. So I own him. He's my toy. That was their relationship. Putter Smith was my toy, my favorite toy. There was no sexual thing in between these two characters for my character, nor was it for Putter, who was also straight. And uh, we were both married, uh, and uh, he married to a woman, I was married to a woman. <laughs> and so that part was gone, but then a guy came up to me and said, Bruce, come over and pick out your, your scorpion. I went, what? <laughs> oh, no. I'm going to be Mr. Wind. I'm going to be holding a scorpion in my bare hand. Oh, ick. And we had a long walk over to where there was a big tarpaulin laid out with lots of insects, including scorpions, crawling around on it. And I'm walking over towards him. I went, wait a minute. I don't want to hold a scorpion. Ick, ick, ick. I went, oh, wait a minute. You're a big show-off actor. You're going to be the only person on the set with a scorpion. Yeah. I've got a scorpion and you do not. I've got a trick and you don't. Hmm. That was character. Potter was my toy and I had a trick. That was Mr. Wind. And within, you know, within the next half hour, I was on set and doing great and getting applause and all that stuff. But in, in those days, I've always 
I like to re- have rapport with the crew, the camera crew, and whatever. Uh, I'm not one of those weird actors who stays in a, in a kind of a cloak and doesn't let anyone invade. I, I socialize, and uh, I'm relating to people and all of that, and I would draw pictures of people on the set, and I used to play chess with Roman Polanski on the side. And, uh, so I'm... Uh, I'm not one of those. I, I like to live, and I only become the character when the camera starts rolling. Then I'm the character. And when the camera stops, I'm back to being Bruce and uh, relating to people and finding out stuff and asking questions about stuff, growing and changing. Letting things in is, is my approach to acting. Right. So I never know quite what's going to be. I never knew what uh, Mr. Wentz you know, was going to look like. I finally got to see some of it when we were working in, in uh, Pinewood Studios. And I got a couple of the editors who let me come in and watch a little bit of stuff. But I hadn't seen the film. Uh, they they didn't realize how important Wentz and Kid were to that movie. I Definitely. Mean, they're, really, they're really the most created and I created every char- every moment of that character Guy Hamilton I had lots of ideas and all of the humor in that film that was some of the most uh, control I ever had of a character because Guy Hamilton was very open to every idea I had and every laugh in that film from Mr. Wind and Mr. Kidd is mine my idea and right. I would say to Guy, uh, I think I can get a laugh with this. And he says, he would go, all right, show me. And I would show him. And then he would call over the Aussie film uh, director and uh, the uh, director of photography. And he would always look at it, too. And he would always go with this Aussie kind of accent. Europe? (laughs) (laughs) Which was yes in Aussie. (laughs) (laughs) And so then we would shoot what I had decided would be funny. And um, the final moment when Sean does that rude thing to Wint, uh, bringing in Sharita uh, Hua up in Yaha, and uh, Wint has his final great sexual moment, which is the biggest laugh. And uh, uh, in the film, and but I had lots of laughs all the way through the film, and all of them were my ideas of how that character should go. So, Mr. Wind was really my creation, and but I didn't know what it was like, and I didn't see the film. Uh, they didn't fly me and Putter back to London for the grand opening. They brought all these other people back there, not realizing that how important Wint and Kid were to the quality of that film. They're really the best thing in the film. Yeah, no disagreements. And, you know, you've talked about, like, the comedic aspects of those characters, and Diamonds is definitely more um, comic bond than many. But one thing about Wint and Kid that's really interesting is that they genuinely are dangerous in the movie, and they get the drop on Bond several times, which a lot of Bond henchmen don't. Yeah. And I just love for you to talk about the balancing of the humor and sort of the dangerous element. Okay, humor is something that I instinctively always had. Uh, I would, uh, 
I knew, I remember like when, again, when I was like three years old, uh, I was put in a, a church pageant, which I, I suppose was an acting lesson. And I was, um, a little barrel chested kid, um, and, uh, but three years old and they had Jesus and Mary, um, Joseph and Mary going from house to house, uh, up on the platform of this church, up on the altar of this church, and I was the third person I came to, and I had one line, um, no room at the end. And uh, when they got to me, um, they said, can we stay here? And I barreled out with my little voice, no room at the end. <laughs> no first church burst into laughter. <laughs> And I knew I loved getting the laugh, so I said it again, and I said it again, and I, the preacher started chasing me around the altar. So I had a sense of how to get laughs and how much I enjoyed getting laughs. One of the great things about doing theater, and I, as I said, I did summer stock where you did a, a new play every week. Uh, you would be rehearsing um, the new play while you were performing the play at night that you'd done during the week before, and uh, it's great, you know, a great way of uh, testing out your variety, because every week you're an entirely different character, but about laughter, if you've got a character that has comic aspects to it, you use the audience to build it, uh, you could, one of the great things about theater is you use the audience, mm. the audience is a way of, you learn how to manipulate an audience when you're working in theater. And you learn how to move a laugh, like the first night you only get two laughs, and then the second night you do a couple other things and you get five laughs. And then finally the third night you get the whole audience laughing because you have figured out how to manipulate the audience into making this a comic moment and how to direct their attention to the comic moment. So you need to direct the attention of the audience onto something that causes them to laugh. And that's part of the the, the uh, technique of laughter. If you know how to direct the audience. But with with film you don't you don't have an audience, you just have the crew and they're not laughing or just doing their work and uh, uh you have to so when I'm doing stuff with Guy it, took a lot of years of confidence in the hundred plays that I've done to be able to go in there and strongly recommend that a certain thing happen with humor. Um, am I answering the question you asked? Me? Well, yeah, you're, t you're talking about the comedy, but I was just curious, like the balancing of the comic aspects of the character with the dangerous element, which really does come across in the movie. Yeah. Well, the danger was there, and uh, I'm also a person that is dangerous. I mean, I was a tough guy. <laughs> hmm. And I knew uh, how to, I knew how to be, uh, I knew how to knock a guy out with one punch. And uh, I had a certain dangerous aspect to me as a kid. But I was like, uh, I was a nerd with muscles. <laughs> right. I would protect nerds, and I didn't. I, I would protect them from, you know, muscle guys who were, you know, nasty. Um, so 
I have the ability to be dangerous. And if I'm playing a character that, but the, one of the tying in with the humor of the character is the two characters enjoyed killing. Right. They took great delight in their ability to kill. And that was part of the danger of it was their pleasure. Uh, I remember one of my favorite scenes was just riding in their car. Putter Smith and I are not talking. We just start laughing. And we're both laughing, looking forward to where we're driving. And we have just accomplished something. I think we're just after we had put Sean Connery into a pipe uh, he buried uh, to his death under uh, ground, uh, which also got into the aspect of working with Sean. Sean um, didn't know me or Putter, and he didn't know that we were two straight guys playing two gay guys. So I'm big about making jokes on sets. And I, you know, like I said, I like a rapport with the crew and all of that. And I remember when Putter Smith and I, after maybe the first day of shooting, were walking off into the sunset, so to speak, after we had just blown up a helicopter and killed a couple people. And um, we suddenly take hands and walk off holding hands. Right. <laughs> which was a daring thing to do. In fact, five years later, when they first showed Diamonds on television, they cut that moment out. Yeah. It was too daring to show two guys holding hands on a set, walking off into the sunset. So the the idea, but I remember we were on the set when Guy Hamlin said, okay, cut, and I yelled out just to make the crew laugh, you're blushing to putter. <laughs> and the whole crew laughed. And that's my idea of fun on a set. So, uh, and, you know, Guy Hamilton laughed too. They all thought that was funny that I said that. Now, later on, I, our first scene with Sean Connery, I think, was we were picking up Sean out of the trunk of a car and going to carry him over to put him in a pipe to bury him underground. Right. And I'm chest to chest with Sean, lifting him out of the trunk, because it's like 2.30 in the morning and all of the extras have gone. And we're there for the crew to light us. And I'm chest to chest with Sean. And uh, I thought I'd make a joke. I thought I'd make Sean laugh. So I said, and I said it in this way, just try to get Sean to laugh, I said, I think I'm getting emotionally involved. <laughs> and I thought Sean would laugh, and he didn't laugh. And I went, oh my God. I don't, I'm serious. <laughs> right. I thought, I, I better tell him, I better say, Sean, no, that was a joke. I'm, I'm not emotionally involved I, but I could look into it into his Scottish brain and I could see his brain talking to himself oh my god and I thought I should tell him I'm Sean it was a joke and then I my own weird sense of humor clicked in and I went what the hell with it let him worry <laughs> <laughs> so I I didn't say anything to John, and the first three months of 
that was a six-month film. First three months when we were working in the uh, States, and Sean was fine, always a great professional, even though uh, he thought I were gay. <laughs> Wanted to put my hands on him. So he always acted as a pro, and he was great to work with and all that stuff. But I used to flirt with women by reading palms and stuff, and some women said, you should read Sean Palm. So I was reading Sean Palm, and I could feel his, his brain working. And I remember just being very amused by all this, but it, we, it was quite a bit later. We're in Frankfurt, Germany. We come from Pinewood Studios. Pinewood Studios um, uh, was great, and we were working on stuff there. Um, and there was a Brit actor uh, who knew we were going to Germany, and he, he said, I should warn you that when you get to Germany, that the Germans have no sense of humor. None. Right. <laughs> he said, well, I studied German, and there was Brits on train, on platform, waving at Hans, Hans on on." outside the train waving at Fritz and train starts up and Fritz hits Swan Hans on face <laughs> ha ha and he said that's German humor and I said really and he said yeah that's German humor so Putter and Schmutt Putter and I are in a car being driven to the airport where we're going to do a scene and uh, Putter and I are in the back seat, and the German airline steward is a very beautiful lady, and the guy, uh, also German, are speaking in German very politely. And uh, she says, oh, there was a terrible accident on the Autobahn. Six people was killed. And Putter Smith leaned over to me, and he said, was that a joke? <laughs> <laughs> He thought that was German humor. So <laughs> I, I never figured out whether Butter believed that. Anyway, we're shooting the scene in the plane where Butter and I are sitting behind Sean and Jill St. John. And um, the, the guy says, okay, everyone out of the plane while we like this scene. And I got out of the plane and that German airline stewardess was sitting on a Vegas car and she waved me over and there were two other beautiful German airline stewardess. And I went over, even though I'm married and you know, I was my wife was back there in London expecting me to be non-flirty. I can't help but flirt. Mm. So I got over to this thing and I'm flirting with these three beautiful German airline stewardess suddenly I felt off to my left. I felt like this energy. Even before I heard anything, I just felt this energy. And then I heard this voice go, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and I could hear it was Sean's voice. And he said it again, you son of a bitch. And he's laughing. And he's waving his finger scoldingly at me as he approaches me. And he says about four times, you son of a bitch, and he's laughing. And then he joins me on the uh, on the baggage cart, and we both flirted with the women. So suddenly Sean realized by the way I was flirting with these women that I wasn't gay. <laughs> right. Now, what is it and like... Then, oh, uh, I was going to ask, what is it like... 
to break down a scene with Sean Connery, you know, being an actor and an acting coach yourself, like, what is it like to actually break down a scene with Sean Connery? Well, there's no breaking down of a scene. There's a business that you do and what there is, you know. I mean, frankly, it's called blocking when you're doing summer stock and you're, first day you block out this scene then you do that scene so blocking means what is your business you know like mm -hmm. are you going to strangle Sean on this thing or are you showing him a bottle of wine you're just doing your business so in a sense Sean is a total professional you know as I am and you're you're doing the business and setting up what you're going to do for the camera and again there is that combination of working with the crew and lighting and all of this stuff, you know, previously worked with wardrobe and makeup and all of that stuff. So doing a film is a series of people doing their individual tasks. So um, Sean does what he has to do. I do what I have to do. There's no big questioning going on. Uh, he's calm and uh, collected and does what he does. And he's a strong person personality on film, you know, one of the strongest personalities I've ever worked with. But you you enjoy that, you know, I, I did. And uh, so when we're, um, but just back to that other story about uh, Sean discovering finally that I wasn't gay. Mm. I, I used to teach a lot of stunt people uh, about acting and stuff. I had, you know, I had classes for years. I don't teach classes anymore. I'll, I'll do online teaching a little bit. But uh, the um, uh, I had a stunt man that was going to be working with Sean, uh, and I said, "When you see Sean, I want you to do this. I want you to go to Sean and tell him, tell him this, and I want you to say these words the way I tell you to say it." And the stuntman said, "Okay." And I said, "When you see Sean, say." Bruce Glover sends his love. <laughs> <laughs> and um, then and he said he would do that. So uh, I saw him later after he'd done the film with Sean. And I said, did you do that thing with Sean? He's, and I said, yeah. He said, yeah. And I said, how did he react? He said, he laughed. <laughs> he laughed when I said that. And then he said, tell that crazy son of a bitch hello from me. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my last message from Sean Connery. You know, again, I made him laugh. <laughs> <laughs> You've talked about how a lot of the ideas, you know, you came up with on set, you know, and talked to Guy Hamilton. Yeah. When you were looking at, like, the yeah. script initially, did it feel like your character was underwritten? Was it a different take on the character? Because obviously it evolved a lot shooting it. No, it's a script. For these characters, written by uh, Hamilton, uh, what's his name, uh, Mankiewicz, yeah. Tom Mankiewicz, who was a terrific writer, and he created a terrific script. You know, as an actor, I've done, you know, thousands of scripts, uh, and sometimes you're gifted by a script that gives you stuff to work on. So Mankiewicz had written a script that gave me the opportunity to spring spring out of that. It was one of the best opportunities I ever had. So uh, I never, you know, I did work with Tom later. He was directing a television show, which he brought me in on. And, uh, but I don't know if I ever really fully thanked him enough for what he did as a writer. The other writer wrote all that other stuff, but Mankiewicz wrote the stuff that 
me the opportunities to create the laughter, but it was the beginning was Mankiewicz. And thank you, Tom. Thank you. He's passed on a long time ago, but I'm, mm-hmm. but I'm still thankful for what he did as a writer. And sometimes you get scripts that are wonderful gifts, and then sometimes you get scripts that are, in a way, in their own way, a skip because you and, and manage to improvise around them. And I would take a, a terrible script and make it a lot of better, better by not doing the lines but reading the script, but improvising my own lines and making making a better scene on a piece of trash that previously been written. But diamonds are forever. Tom Mankiewicz uh, was the gift giver for me. And the gift, the gifts there were. Mankiewicz starting Guy Hamilton, the director, uh, Cubby Broccoli, who was one of the choosers of me, and Sean Connery, of course, and Potter Smith was just a terrific uh, character to work off of. You know, he gave me great, uh, great things to work off of. Uh, I don't know if he really truly understood, understood. He did a little bit of acting at that, but basically he was a magician, a musician, and uh, he... Uh, Guess went back to music. I haven't talked to him in a long time. I tried to get him to uh, do an autograph thing with me, but he wouldn't do it. Hmm. So uh, I hope he's well and doing good. Uh, but uh, you know, it, it, gifts are sometimes come in weird disguises, and I've described a lot of the gifts that I've got, including getting malaria. Which actually caused me to stop becoming a football player and find acting. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, uh, you know, uh, lucky me that I found the, the thing that I'm really gifted at and uh, will do more with it. You know, my son Chris and I did a film that will eventually be coming out. Mm-hmm. Uh, five generations of family, I played through four characters, and then three of them are the older version of three of Crispin's characters, and my son Crispin, of course, is an incredibly gifted actor, and he's right now just went back to the Czech Republic where we shot our film um, that uh, we did very quickly, 10 years, I don't know <laughs> how many trips did I make to, to Czech, Czech Republic, and I also did a film in Poland that where I acted in Polish. But I haven't had an agent in years and for a long time that worked fine because I would if there were people who were still working in the business and bring me bring me parts that uh, I didn't need an agent for or cast or anything else. Um, I've got a couple other projects that people want me to do but my main big project right now is my art book and I'm a terrific painter and uh, the book will be coming out eventually, and I may do more than one art book, but I'm also going to do a book on acting. Nice. And how not to act by becoming the character rather than acting it. Right. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Agents, pardon the interruption, but we have some top secret intel. That's right. Independent podcasting is not cheap. Equipment, hosting, research... We don't have Townsend Agency resources. And also, we don't want to run ads on the show. No one wants to hear that shit, tucky mushrooms. And this is a big reason we created the Spy Hearts Patreon. So we're here asking for your help. Please consider joining the Patreon. You'll not only be gaining access to our exclusive lineup of reviews and film commentaries, 
but also helping support the show. We're currently saving to upgrade our sound equipment to bring your listening experience up to Q-Branch standards. With a wide range of flexible options and an ever-growing catalogue to dive into, become a true spy hard today and enter the Xander Zone at patreon.com slash spyhards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, or you can find a link in the show notes below. Now, Cam, on with the spy jinx. And, um, you know, at the time you do Diamonds Are Forever, like, the Bond franchise is huge. You know that you're probably going to be in a movie that's going to be a hit. Have you been surprised, though, at the legacy of the movie, the fact that, you know, 50 years plus, we're still talking about and analyzing and rediscovering Diamonds Are Forever? in a sense that they, nobody realized how important Wint and Kid were to the movie. So, again, I didn't see the movie until long after it had been released. In, 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 uh, but the, the parts, I saw it finally in, uh, in uh, at a movie theater here in L.A. And uh, I was it was the first time I saw the character. Because, again, I don't know what my character is going to look like until I see it later. Um, when I was doing theater, I, I didn't know what I was coming across as. I just could tell by the audience response in the place whether the character was coming across. Uh, it, you know, it was a scary film, a uh, scary play, that the character would be scary in the audience. It was a comic play in the audience so I finally saw it in a theater and I realized how good the character was because I hadn't seen it and I realized how terrific it was for the film and it realized that sometimes it takes a long time for people to realize how great a piece of work it is you know thank mm-hmm. God we've, that's the thing about art is art will eventually reveal itself and uh, there is there is a, a growth in that. Uh, Diamonds, uh, again, was mainly, I mean, the best thing about Diamonds was Wint and Kid. They were the unusual aspect to the film. Um, other stuff that went on wasn't necessarily the greatest thing. I, you know, I, was, I finally looked at the, this uh, last uh, Bond film that we just done. It was a terrific movie.
lived in uh, in uh, a terrific place with my wife and my son, and traveled over to Europe for other things. So, six months of Diamonds Arc River was one of the best gifts I ever got as an actor. The Walking Tall film, the first one, which was an excellent film. Uh, Hard Times, a strong film with uh, Charlie Bronson. Um, there are there are certain films that, and of course, Chinatown with Jack Nicholson. Yep. And, uh, I had a great opportunity in that film, and Guy uh, uh, Roman Polanski was great to me, and I used to play chess with Roman. And uh, whenever I'm on a set, uh, after I stopped playing chess with Roman, I, I would get my sketchbook out and I do sketches and uh, eventually paintings of uh, film crews and. Some of some of my book paintings will be sketches and paintings of, of uh, things that happen on movie sets. Like one of them is a helicopter uh, that I've just gotten out of crashing into a car just behind me. Um, I have a painting of that. I've had several different magic, uh, drawings of that event because movie sets are dangerous because mm. they're dangerous things. They're trying to do things that are dangerous and quite often, uh, you know, people do get killed on movie sets. Yep. <laughs> people realize that, yeah, movie sets are dangerous and I've been in danger many times and one of the worst things that can happen to you as an actor is when you finally come out to California from from uh, New York and uh, the different between stage, you have to learn how to be on two dangerous creatures. Dangerous one, horses. You had to learn to ride horses. <laughs> <laughs> so you would have the dumbest creature in the world riding on top of the horse, the second dumbest creature in the world the horse, and the third dumbest creature, the cattle that we were herding. <laughs> well, uh, you know, talking about stunt, basically kind of the stunts, you know, I wanted to just ask briefly, you touched on hard times, but we have talked about um, James Coburn and the Flint movies. And I would just love yeah. to have a bit of insight about just working with James Coburn because there's not a lot of people that have been able to, you know, t tell us stories firsthand about working with him. Coburn was the most sociable and the most friendly actor I ever worked with. His his dressing room became like the place where everyone went to have a good time. Uh, Coburn was a good time constantly, and working with him was uh, he was there. And uh, he um, the scene that I scenes that I had with him were always uh, wonderful. I mean. Coburn was an incredible actor and solid and really had uh, powerful things. So working with Coburn was like his, his uh, you know, his sociability and his amusement and his enjoyment of people was constant. But Bronson, on the other hand, was this private man who didn't want to be imposed on. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, an excellent actor. And... Uh, Great to work with, uh, but not something somebody you wanted to intrude on. He needed his privacy. People would come up and say, "Could I give an aut get an autograph?" And he'd go, "I don't give autographs." So, "Could I shake your hands?" He says, "I don't shake hands." Hmm. You know, he would he, he would push people off. 
But it, it, it wasn't hard to work with. He was a total pro, and I enjoyed working with both Bronson and Coburn. Coburn was terrific. But years later at the academy, I remember saying hello to Coburn, and he didn't remember me. He mm. didn't remember who I was. <laughs> and I didn't take the time to explain to him that we had worked together beautifully in, uh, in, in, uh, hard times and, uh, which also was a terrific film. Yeah. And, uh, probably balanced, uh, as the films that I did, Chinatown and Hard Times are probably the two best balanced films of all the films I've worked in. Mm -hmm. uh, Diamonds Are Forever was the greatest opportunity for me. But the first Walking Tall was an excellent film, too. And uh, I got to work with, uh, you know, a lot of good people in that thing. And, but to, to prepare myself for that part, I just listened to a lot of country music. Uh, I'm not one of those persons who wants to get the absolutely perfect accent, even though I have a, a, a good ear and I can do things. And when I go back to, like, when I did that French part that fooled the casting director and thinking that I was French, and I'm being so impressed by that that got me diamonds out forever. And uh, it, uh, it, it's, it's a, this business is, is again, an extraordinary business, and it keeps changing. I'm not too happy with the way film has gone recently. Mm, yeah. I do think that, in a sense, uh, somebody, I don't know, maybe it was you said that the best films were done in the early 70s. Um, they tend to look at, it, yes, 70s is definitely considered one of the great eras, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, look, you, you look, I, I look at my life, and I, you know, I, I'm living now, my wife, who I had a terrific wife with for 56 years, and mm -hmm. she was a terrific mother to Crispin, and uh, I, I miss her every day, uh, I guess it's almost six years ago now that I lost her. And uh, But you have to look back and remember all of the good things that you get out of it, and out of everything that you have, and you, you can't just be sitting around you know, crying every minute of the day, even though you, but you can also sit around and recall all the good things. So when I look back, and this is one of the reasons why I, I enjoy doing an interview like this, I enjoy thinking back mm -hmm. to what it was, and I look forward to any questions you have to get my mind thinking about what was it, what was that like, and where where do I go next? Well, again, I'm a person who needs projects, and again, I have writing to do. I don't know, maybe I'll do some more acting, maybe I won't. I'm not particularly worried about it. You know, I, I'm also, uh, one of the things I miss the most was I, I'm a, well, remained a, a terrific athlete. I mean, when I was doing Diamonds Are Forever, I was still, I had already created a uh, soccer team. Um, I had taken Crispin, who was uh, a good athlete, and skied something like that eventually. But I didn't—I uh, didn't think he was uh, a potential football player, player, not an American football player. Mm -hmm. But I took him to uh, uh, soccer 
and there was, there was AYSO, American Youth Soccer Organization. So I took Crispin and got him on a, a, a child uh, game um, team, and uh, uh, we were. I was. I didn't know anything about soccer, but I just looked like it might be kind of good. But a couple guys came up to me, and one was a Brit, and the other one was a Scot. And uh, the Brit said, "We'd like you. We're starting a soccer team, and we'd like you to be on it." And I went, "I don't. I, I don't. I don't know anything about soccer." And I said, "Yeah, but you got a good build on you, and you look like you could be a good player." And so they, I went and played on this team. It was a terrible team. They took it into this league, which eventually became a kind of a celebrity league, and. Uh, they got kicked out of the league after one game. <laughs> They're a terrible team. But I kind of fallen in love with the sport. I was starting to, you know, study it. And uh, there was a, I, I live across the street uh, from a park, and uh, Mar Vista Park. And there was, uh, every Saturday, there were a, a swarm of Argentinian players. Uh, and Mexicans and uh, Colombians and uh, uh, play seven in the morning till seven at night till it got too dark. And people would come and go, and there would be as many as hundred people on each team. And so I was over there watching that, and uh, one of the players looked over at me and he said, and this was my nickname for a while. He said, "Hey, movie." <laughs> <laughs> do you want to play? And I went, yeah. <laughs> so my nickname for a while was movie. <laughs> but I started playing uh, with these teams, and I would play for two, three, four hours every Saturday. And uh, But then I got decided uh, to study it, and I got books on, on soccer, and I started studying how teams were formed. And I went and bought a bunch of secondhand jerseys, uh, one red and one blue. And uh didn't matter that they all matched, but just as long as one was red and the other one was blue from secondhand stores. And I made an announcement that I'm going to be putting two teams on a field over at a high school um, and at a junior high, and uh, they should all arrive. And I started two teams, and uh, I kept the jerseys myself and would wash them and, you know, bring them back for each week. And then after about three weeks, I gave one of the teams to one of the Argentinians, and I built my team around an Argentinian who was a terrific player. And I built that team. I was the boss and the owner of the team. And I took that team back into the league that that original team that I played with had been kicked out of. And we didn't lose a game for three years. Hmm, <laughs> wow. We played every Sunday. And I would also do pickup games during the week. So in a way, I'm, you know, I, I, I was actually gifted physically and very strong and, uh, that was the biggest thing I had as a, as a soccer player with my physical strength. I could take the ball away from anybody. And I would score goals. I played midfield so I could go either defense or offense either way. And uh, 
but I played for years. And uh, uh, eventually my knee got destroyed enough so I had to quit playing. But I played for 35 years. Oh, that's great. Well, you know, as we kind of wrap up here, I have a question that we ask yeah. everyone who comes on the show. We like to ask them. You know, we're a spy movie podcast, and we'd like to know, what's your favorite spy movie? Diamonds are forever. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's <laughs> the obvious answer. But if we move beyond, you know, you know, obviously Diamonds Are Forever, is there any that jumped out to you? Whether, you know, anything, classic movies or? Spy movies. Yeah. Well, in a sense, I told you that I just seen the Daniel Craig movie. Mm-hmm. The, you know, No Time to Die. And I think that that way up on my list of well-done movies. Okay, well now you're introducing you're introducing now a question we often ask people too. You worked with Sean Connery on Diamonds Are Forever. You really loved No Time to Die with Daniel Craig. Who do you consider yeah. to be like your definitive Bond? Sean. Yeah. Sean Connery. Uh, Craig is a terrific actor, but you know, I mean, I worked with Sean. Sean did the first Bond film. And the, the first Bond film that Sean did was a good movie. I like that movie a lot. Yeah, Dr. No is fantastic. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I, I think uh, I'll look forward to seeing Craig do other movies. And uh, I think he's a terrific actor. And, but again, Sean is my is, is, is my 007 forever. In fact, at some point, he, uh, you know, I brought Crispin on the set, and uh, Sean tapped him on the forehead and said, he's a future 007. <laughs> so, somewhere who is smart should make Crispin the next James Bond. I'd watch that. Should be the next 007. I mean, I loved his work in the Charlie's Angels films as playing a villain who's very much like a Bond villain, so I would, I mean, him as Bond would definitely be interesting. Yeah, but he would be, he's a terrific Bond. If you look at his acting, he has a variety of roles and he's able to do a variety of things. He's, he's not just always the same character. So mm -hmm. if somebody came up with the money and the smarts to cash Crispin as James Bond, they would thank me a lot for my prodding in, in that direction. I'd like to see Crispin do Sean Connery, if you look at, uh, uh, he wouldn't do Sean Connery, of course, but he would do a Bond that would be worth looking at, worth seeing. Mm -hmm. he is, he's a multi-talent, and he has smarts uh, like his daddy, you know. Right. <laughs> well, Bruce, I can't thank you enough for joining us to, just to talk about your experiences in, in the industry as well as Diamonds Are Forever, a movie that... I think for Bond fans, is very special. Well, tell people to look for my art book and also to look me up on IMDb and see the variety of other roles that I've done. And they'll see that everyone is different. And if they want to study acting, they might be able to contact me and I can do some online coaching with people. Awesome. And, you know, you have like a very full IMDb filmography. And we've talked about things like, you know, Chinatown, Diamonds, 
um, you know, hard times. Movies that are, I think, pretty well known. Is there a credit out there you've done, you're really proud of, that maybe people just don't really, it maybe didn't grab the audience the way you'd like, or something that's maybe a little obscure that you think people should check out? Well, I've done a variety of things. I, I remember playing an electrified man in uh, Popcorn. Yeah. Yeah. A movie called Popcorn. And um, the, uh, I, when I did the audition, uh, again, like doing the character, uh, I figured that if the character is electrified, and eventually it's a guy who gets executed and then gets becomes electrified and starts electrocuting other people. So it's in a way, it's the best thing in that film, uh, Popcorn. I, I like to brag and say that what I did with, as the electrified thing, man, was the best thing <laughs> in the movie. Uh, because it, the director who directed it was a writer on the film, and he only directed the films within the film, and that's the best part of the movie. The rest of the stuff is okay, you know, but it's not... Uh, but so... Look at me in Popcorn as the Electrified Man, where I uh, created a voice that had electricity running to it. And, you know, when I did the audition, um, that made them think that there was nobody that could play the guy like I could. But he starts out as, you know, kind of a dorky guy that's, uh, you know, working class stippo. And then becomes electrocuted and starts electrocuting people. <laughs> right. Cool. But I was able to convince that director uh, things. There was one point where, in the script, they had my uh, my character electrocute this girl who was my ex girlfriend, and I said, "No, don't do it that way. Make it this way. Make her feel sorry for me and kiss me and." She jumps at me and kisses me and electrocutes herself. And then I, and sadly, after I, I realized she did step on this wire that they've been trying to get me to step on and electrocute myself. So that was stuff that I added to the film myself. Um, there, there's a film, there's a film called Hunter's Blood where there was a scene where my character was going to be, um, um, a backwoods guy called One Eye, and uh, I made up whole scenes in there. There was a scene where my character—these were backwoods people—where some guys had come in hunting, and we start hunting the hunters, and we were like backwoods creatures. Uh, I remember one line that I had that uh, I just made up on thing where I'm screaming out, "I want my hands on his flesh." <laughs> This was a line I made up, and there was a whole scene where they had my character coming down the side of a hill, and then uh, finding the body of one of my people that had been killed by the hero of the film, and uh, they had no dialogue written in there, so they had this terrific shot set up where I'm climbing down this whole hill, and then crawling down to the ground and then crawling under a trunk of a tree and finding the body of my buddy. And um, they said, okay, action, camera's rolling. And I yelled out, it's sound rolling. And they said, why? I said, because I'm going to say stuff. <laughs> <laughs> 
And they said, what are you going to say? I said, wait and see. (laughs) (laughs) Uh So I started crawling down the hill, and I'm saying, hey, Jody, where are you going, boy? And I'm making up stuff as I'm going, and I'm making up lines. You fall down, you fall down, boy. You you get up on your get-alongs, or I'm going to whomp you, boy. And I'm making up all this stuff as I'm going. And then finally I find his body and uh, I pick up his hand and his head is all shot apart. And I hold his hand and uh, and I've done all of his dialogue. And people want to go look. It's called Hunter's Blood if they want to find it and look at it. It's a pretty terrific scene. Uh, but again, I made it all up. And now I'm holding his hand and I'm like, and I'm going, how, now how do I, you know, done all my input. What am I going to do? And I finally just yelled, holding his hand. I screamed out, Aah! and they used that uh, sound uh, to film the hero of the thing running and hearing that sound in the distance. <laughs> the producer came running up to me at the end of the scene. He said, you just made it into the greatest film ever. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, it's not the greatest film ever, but <laughs> Awesome. Again, that kind of daring from an actor is something where you have to like dare to know when you know something that the director or nobody else knows on the set, and you just have to take your step. Sometimes, you know, you'll make people mad. Sometimes they'll make you run up and say, "You made this into the best film ever." <laughs> awesome. Well, Bruce, it's a th- dangerous th- world, and live dangerously, and enjoy every scary moment. Um, well, Bruce, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. All right, my friend. Okay, thank well, you. no, thank you so much. This was a real pleasure, and I mean, I've been watching Diamonds Are Forever since I was, I think, 12. I'm 41 now. It's a movie that's been with me a long time, so this was a real treat. Well, look at it again and see if you can make any I will actually be watching it tonight. Super. Thanks. Okay. I enjoyed it. Well, there you go, folks. That was our chat with Bruce Glover. Who'd have thought it? Yeah, I know. This one was surreal because when we started this podcast, the dream was always to get like a Bond icon. And we've had a couple. Like we've definitely had, you know, John Glenn. We had Rachel Grant. So it's been exciting for me just as a Bond fan to talk to people who were, you know, associated with making these movies that I've been watching since I was very young. But to talk to Bruce Glover, who plays like one of the most iconic of henchmen you know you have jaws you've got odd job but winton kid also ranked very high i think within in the bond canon as pretty memorable henchmen in the uh, series yeah absolutely and i think before maybe we chat a little bit about your discussion i i did tee it up at the beginning but a little bit of as to, as to why it was just you mm, yeah so just to set the scene a little bit as is normal i had set this interview up i i made contact with bruce But Bruce didn't have the facilities to do an internet Skype slash Zoom chat. So Cam stepped up. Yeah, that's right. So I updated my Canadian cell phone plan to make some U.S. calls. And him and I had a really great chat on the phone just, you know, doing that interview. I I just found it so surreal because it was just an actor I've seen in so many films. You know, we talk about things like Chinatown, for example, in the interview. But just to talk to this legendary character actor about his stories and just experiences in the industry was surreal and not a phone call I ever expected to make in my life. 
No, and 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 you have to also paint the picture and, and give credit to Cam on this one. You know, much as I'm sure what you're hearing in your ear is a slice of audio delight, just picture Cam holding his phone up to the microphone for 90 minutes. That is accurate. That is 100% accurate. His wrist has never been the same. <laughs> I'm in a cast right now. <laughs> <laughs> he wants me to sign it, but I won't let it happen. <laughs> but yeah, to, just to, to to talk about Bruce, I mean, for a minute. Now, he really does sort of chronicle his career in Hollywood. You, you touch on a number of films with him, a lot that I haven't seen. So I, I'll leave that between you and Bruce to, to talk about. But, you know, hearing about his origins and just getting into acting, he didn't even really want to be an actor. He just kind of eventually fell into it, but found it something he was naturally gifted at. It was not a story I was familiar with at all. Yeah, and just being sort of a tough kid in Depression-era Chicago um, and finding his way into theater was just a fascinating story unto itself. And initially, I just asked him, you know, a question we often do on the show when we have interviews. We're like, oh, how did you get into blank, whether it's, you know, acting, cinematography, directing, whatever. And so when I just kind of gave him that one as, you know, what was the first spark of the acting bug, he kind of like takes that moment of like, well, <laughs> and he had like a real epic anecdote that I thought was just fascinating, taking him from, yeah, just a place that you would not think of someone moving into acting from, and just how that journey was far more rich and, um, you know, complicated than just I signed up for an acting class one day and that was that. Well, I, I think it also goes to show that he's quite a storyteller in his own way. Like it, I could probably sum that up in a couple of sentences, but this man, I think 20 minutes you're talking about him getting into acting and you're listening to it the whole time. It's riveting stuff. Yeah, I really enjoyed that a lot. Like he was someone who was just, as you said, a fantastic storyteller and could really bring you back to kind of the time and place in which these stories were unfolding. Like, I could almost like visually imagine what he was describing, which is a quality that a lot of people don't have. And it certainly doesn't exist in a lot of modern films. Mm, no, that's true. Which is also something you discuss. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But then what a lot of people hear is just to hear about him working on Diamonds of Forever and getting to work with the amazing cast the film had. And just the story of him basically meeting Mr. Wint on the set, more or less, as, or like just as they were casting it and then barely talking about it, not wanting to read the script particularly to get a feel for his character and just sort of wanting to go in basically blind on the day is, uh, again, something that surprised me completely. And not wanting to know which character he was. I thought that was yeah. fascinating. I, I mean, quite the task, I would imagine, for an actor to walk in on the day of shooting and be like, yeah, so who am I playing? Yeah. And trying to find a dynamic with Putter Smith, who's not an actor. And I appreciated just him talking about working with someone who's not you know, a trained actor and finding an on-screen chemistry. But also just like when you see those two guys standing side by side in a movie you pay attention. Like, they are instantly memorable. They, like, really are quite iconic, the two of them together. And it seems like a lot of the energy there just was really conjured up between these two guys trying to find a common ground between someone who's so well-versed in acting versus someone who, you know, was a jazz bassist. And you have to think that looking at the players involved into bringing those characters alive, you've got the director, you've got the writer, and you've got the two actors. And then you, know, you could tip your hat to, you know, 
stunt the props and things like that too but a lot of it is just the look and behavior of the two of them and i put a lot of that praise on bruce glover of just making those two stand out because as you said Potter smith plays a good character but he's not an actor he's really just sort of reacting to what bruce is doing a lot of the time mm-hmm. and you know bruce brings in that sense of mystery and danger i think and and he talks a little bit about that in the interview um, and just some of like the stories of working on the set with with Sean Connery. I mean, much as a couple of the stories that he spoke about, mm, questionable now, definitely. But just to say, like I worked with Sean Connery, that's still something to hang your hat on. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I get the vibe that like Guy Hamilton, who directed that one, gave him just a lot of leeway in terms of finding who those characters were. It doesn't feel like he was a very, you know, hands-on, here's who you're playing, here's what your motivations are kind of director. He was someone who kind of gave his actors the freedom to kind of play and find what they needed to to make the movie work. And yeah, I also really appreciated him talking about balancing the comic aspects of the film with the danger of Winton Kidd because we talk about it in the review. Winton Kidd are two of the most formidable you know, henchmen that Bond ever went up against because they genuinely had him dead to rights twice. And you've got to think at this point, you know, he's done some acting. He's 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 done some work in Hollywood, but this is still quite an early job for Bruce. And it's something that has stuck with him his entire career because of the performance he gave. And it has it shows a lot of trust that the the the, the Bond producers must have had for him and in his I don't know if it's casting or anything like that or what they've seen him in before. But as you said, that, and you said this earlier on as well in the interview, the vision of Winton Kidd really sticks in your mind, that visual of them like just standing in the desert and that sort of thing, or on the bridge in Amsterdam. And the presence that Bruce brings is, is really important. And that, as you said, the balancing of the comedy and the sort of serious nature of the two is probably, for me, one of the only things that works in the film altogether. Mm-hmm. And also, you know what? John Barry's little musical cue for them goes a long way as well. Like, it feels like... The movie, in many ways, feels almost a little indifferent to, like, Blofeld, but it mm-hmm. really wants to sell Winton Kidd to the audience. And, you know, one thing I was quite surprised about with the chat is he was talking about sort of the the relationship between Winton Kidd, which is something that, you know, they're clearly a, a, a gay couple. That even in, in 1970, you know, Bruce knew that. And that was basically what was written. It's interesting to hear like he didn't necessarily see... I mean, he he agreed that was what it was, but he saw it as perhaps more of an asexual relationship and more like a possession-based relationship where you know one was the possession of the other, which is n- not a lens I had looked at that at before. No, me neither. And it's clearly an actor who's very much thought about you know, what the dynamic is, who his character is. Because I think a lot of people would assume when you're coming into play like a Bond henchman, you know, regardless of the movie, whether it's Diamonds or another one, oh, they just kind of came, showed up, played the bad guy and left. Whereas it's very clear he took this role very seriously and wanted to be able to have an intellectual understanding mm. of every facet of, you know, Mr. Wind. Yeah, and, yeah, you look at um, a number of, of of people who who are gay and they this for a lot of people was their first functional homosexual relationship on screen yeah 
And that's a, I mean, I don't think really, even at the time, they really knew that was the case or they knew that's what the impression on other people would be. And I could see a lot of actors like distancing themselves. There's one I always think about, I always go back to, is a chap, you'll have to tell me the actor's name if you can remember. He plays Lieutenant Hawk in Star Trek First Contact. Yeah, Neil McDonough. That's the chap. And I remember at a convention we both went to, um, someone asked him a question like, in the books, did you know that your character was 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 gay? And he was married to another person on the Enterprise. And they deal with like the tragedy of you dying in the film. And the actor's like, nope, I wasn't gay. It, it wasn't on the page, I don't care. And he was he really shut that question down. And, you know, I don't think there's as much um, ambiguity in Diamonds of Forever. I think it is pretty cut and dry that they are a, a couple but even if the, uh, there is still a little bit of ambiguity there and i think even with that i'm glad that bruce acknowledges it and even at the time used it to sort of build the character even more mm-hmm. yeah and it is something that like we see which is that Wynton and kid are portrayed as a gay couple but when you think of popular mainstream entertainment how many gay couples do you see in you know blockbuster films going forward like i think went and kid in some ways have aged you know questionably you have the whole um aligning the idea of people being you know gay with being evil which goes mm-hmm. back to you know we see that in hitchcock movies all over the place that was a common trope to do and i think is at work in diamonds are forever but it is interesting that what you know marvel will like pat themselves on the back for you know having like a character verbally acknowledge being gay or you know eternals finally we got a gay relationship between two characters but like a lot of the these big franchises that exist now this is like 50 years later and they're like oh uh we had two extras kiss at the end of you know star wars episode 9 that's good enough things like that feel like really just like lip service at best pardon the pun in terms of a kiss there but like yeah like it feels like just kind of trying to just appease people that would like representation mm. versus diamonds which was doing it well in a way they would have been doing it in 1970 let's be honest but nonetheless was willing to have a gay couple together this was done in 1970 and he bruce in all the interviews he's done since including the one with us today he could have just maybe batted it off but he embraced it and he knew from day one that that's what the characters were and i appreciate that he embraced it well, I think before we wrap it up, Cam, is any other things you mentioned with Bruce that you wanted that you were impressed with or you wanted to chat about? Yeah, there was one thing that really stood out for me. We have found a lot of people to talk to in regards to old Bond productions and, you know, get a lot of insight into, you know, films where a lot of the participants are no longer with us. And I was really excited to be able to talk to him about the nineteen seventy five film Hard Times. And his working relationship with James Coburn, who we covered in the Flint films. And we really haven't had anyone on the show who was able to provide insight just about working with James Coburn. So to me, that was a real um, exciting moment. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because, and this is one of the things we were asked recently, we did an interview and they asked us, you know, why do we do these interviews? And I I took a note from a friend of the show, Ian, from the Cold War Conversations podcast. And, and what really drives him to do his interviews is because he wants to, you know, preserve these stories. And, okay, you could maybe look back at some old news footage of James Coburn talking about working on the Flint films or something like that. But there's not a lot. 
really you know we live in this age of content and now there's there's clips of everyone in i don't know criminal there's loads of behind the scenes stuff of them talking tommy lee jones talking ad nauseum about brain surgery but there isn't many people that could say they worked with james coburn and i'm glad we had a chance to speak to someone who actually had that experience yeah and it's something i try to do with these interviews where i can find some sort of connection for you know to a film in the past that we've covered on the show um, some of these stories can be lost because people often would prefer to be talking about Bond or Born or like the big mm-hmm. flashy stuff. But it's really exciting to me to be able to continue on these stories about other popular spy figures that didn't necessarily have the level of, uh, you know, prestige or popularity as the, you know, the big A-listers. Yeah, I mean, everyone looks at the Ethan Hunts, the Jason Bournes, the James Bonds, but there's a lot of other really famous spies that we have spoken about or we will speak about. And I'm excited to do that. And any chance I get to, well, I didn't get to speak to Bruce, but any chance I get to hear people talking about the man who played Derek Flint, I'll take it. Definitely. There you go, folks. That was our chat with Bruce Glover. I say ours, I really should say Cam's. And I want to thank Cam for doing that. I mean, an hour and a half on the phone where you're holding up to the microphone is no easy feat. And I think it sounds really good. Yeah, I had a lot of fun doing it. So, um... I'd prefer to have you there for future interviews, but you know what? This one worked out really well. Yeah, and and uh, we, again, want to thank Bruce as well for taking the time to speak to Cam. I know speaking to Cam can be a really tiresome thing. I do it all the time. Yeah, when we wrapped it up, he said, God, I don't know how Scott Hardy does it. <laughs> I'm glad he name-dropped me. He's been getting my mail, clearly. <laughs> um But there you go, folks. That was the final part of our Diamonds of Forever coverage. We hope you've enjoyed listening to us talking ad nauseum about the final official Sean Connery James Bond film. But Cam, what are we talking about next week? Yes, we are tackling 2001's Spy Game, directed by Tony Scott and starring Robert Redford and Brad Pitt. I know people have wanted to hear about this one for a while. It's been mentioned on Twitter quite a bit. Here it is, guys. Yeah, we're really excited to share this one with you. And we also have another interview coming out next Friday. We were truly blessed with who we've had to speak about Spy Game, um, one of the Hollywood greats. But uh, I'll, I'll wait until you get to the episode to drop who is joining us. So your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch Spy Game and join us next week. You can, of course, follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, if you don't succeed, Cam... Try, try again, Mr. Hardy. (laughs) 